I want to I begin uh, this morning, as, as we continue our sermon series on the book of Psalms, uh, Songs of Zion, I want to begin by telling you that I thought this sermon was going to be a lot shorter, which I've told you before is an old preacher's tactic. He tells you that he had to cut a lot out in hopes that you won't complain about it being too long or the sermon going over time. He hopes that by saying this should have been longer, you will all be forced into thanksgiving if it's only five minutes. But I truly did anticipate the sermon to be shorter because I thought, well, Psalm 13 is six verses. I ended up having to split this into two sermons, just so you know. You'll get the other half of it next Sunday. So this sermon will be the first of a two-parter on Psalm 13. We will still go through the whole psalm this morning. We will go through the whole thing again next Sunday. Uh, next Sunday, we'll touch on some parts of it from kind of different angles, and I'll give you some more points of application as well. But to preach two sermons on this particular psalm is no trouble for me and is profitable to you because we need this psalm on our lips in a very particular, in a very urgent way. I I can't think of a better uh, sermon to preach right now from what I've all preached than after just praying for someone struggling with depression. Um, And uh, more on that in a moment. And so I I think this psalm is, is very urgent for our hour. That we, that we know it through preaching, that we sing it through, through music, and I hope to convince you of that in the next half hour. And so with that, let's, uh, let's go there and read it. Um, Psalm 13, I'll read all of it to you, and then we'll begin. We are told that this is to the choir master, which means at the very least they sung it frequently. A Psalm of David. How long, O Yahweh, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. And again we say, thanks be to God. Growing up in a a military family, an Air Force family, we did move around quite a lot. Standard fare is every two to three years. When I was in elementary school, about from first, second grade to uh, sixth or seventh grade, just having trouble remembering, I think it was second to seventh, actually. Uh, We lived in San Antonio, Texas. That was obviously much longer than three years because Dad asked for an extension and he got it. And so that, until I moved here... Well, actually, no, sorry. Until I moved to Virginia, that was the longest time I'd ever lived in one place, those six years in San Antonio. And so that's uh, Alexandria is where I was born, and so uh, we would frequently come here. That's why one of the reasons why I moved back after my education was finished. We'd moved around a lot, but this was the closest thing to a hometown I had because we spent all of our Christmases and even a lot of our summers here. And so that meant driving from San Antonio to Alexandria basically every year, which is a, as I recall, a seven-hour drive, which when you are in elementary school feels like an absolute eternity. It was a long drive. And 
Children are born with this innate ability. I'm convinced no one teaches it to them. But on a long trip, when their communication gets good, they learn how to say, are we there yet? I quickly learned that this was not an acceptable question to ask, particularly in the, the longer the hours got, that I found this was not an appropriate question to launch at my mother or my father. Are we there yet? Psalm 13 is David asking, pleading with God, how long, O Lord, if you will, are we there yet? He's in the middle of suffering, much worse suffering than just enduring a long car trip. We don't know exactly what he's facing. He doesn't say. We know it involves enemies. That would be verse 4. We know that his life is under threat. Verse 3. We know he's grown weary in the midst of this trial or affliction, whatever it is. It has likely gone on a very long time. And if you've walked through a long season of trial or affliction, you know that much like a long car trip when you're a kid, time itself seems to slow down. The times of ease and blessing and prosperity seem short by comparison. And the times of affliction seem really long. And so David is asking God, if you'll pardon the paraphrase, are we there yet? Can we please get this over with? The psalm has three parts. David's cry to God, verses 1 and 2. David's demand of God, verses 3 and 4. And David's trust in God, verses 5 and 6. So we have a cry to God, a demand of God, and the psalm ends on a note of trust. And this prayer here, this prayer in Psalm 13 is, I I submit to you, I'm offering to you this morning, it's an example for you and I to follow, that God Almighty wants you and I to pray like this. He wants us to cry like this. He wants us to argue and fight like this. And He wants us to sing like this. And so the opening two verses, if you'll go there, verse 1 and 2, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul, have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? These two opening verses are perhaps a bit alarming in their tone and their volume. The first two sentences of the psalm, it's it's a question that charges God with divine neglect. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? David says, you're already forgetting me. How long is this going to go for? That's the tone. I said tone and volume. The psalm is alarming because of the tone and the volume. By volume, I mean the repetition. Four times David asked this question. How long, how long, how long, how long are we there yet? How long will you forget me? How long will you hide from me? How long will I... Take counsel in my soul. I I think the idea there is something like, I go to you for counsel, but you've left me and I have only myself to talk to. How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Four times. I begin here because I believe that most of us have forgotten how to pray like this. It's what makes us uncomfortable when we read a psalm like this. To read words like this, where David seems to be charging the omniscient God, that is, the God who knows everything, sees everything, with forgetting. How can he get away with that? Well, he can get away with it, first of all, because he's not getting away with anything. 
He's praying in accordance with how God Almighty has inspired and trained him to pray. Okay? Inspired and trained him to pray. All of that for your sake, dear saints, so that it would be written down and you would read it. God wants us to pray like this. God wants us to cry out like this. He wants us to argue like this, and He wants us to sing like this. Four times David asks, How long, O Lord? Now, if you were listening when I read the the whole text at the start of the sermon, you know that the psalm has a brighter ending. You know it's going somewhere, and and later on we're going to get to steadfast love and rejoicing and so on. You know the sun eventually rises in the dark valley that David's in. You know that there's hope, sort of down the road in verses 5 and 6. But you have to go through the darkness of verses 1 through 4 to get there. Just like there's no resurrection without a cross, so there is no Christian joy without Christian lament. And we struggle with that. I think sometimes we think God owes us the mountaintops and, and so that we can avoid the valleys. We tend to think that when we are in the valley, something must have gone terrible, terribly wrong. There's this great bit from, from C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters where uh, right, the, the demon Screwtape writes to the demon Wormwood telling him how to tempt human beings. And he says, you've got to pay attention to this thing called the law of undulation, which means there's going to be high points and there's going to be low points in the Christian life. And when you're dealing with this Christian, you're trying to tempt him, right? You can't avoid that. He can't avoid that, by the way. There's going to be high points. There's going to be low points. You can't do anything about the high points. Wormwood, the demon, right? The, the, the enemy, the Lord, uh, according to the demons, is just going to give those to him. You can't do anything about the low points. We'd like to make them last forever, but we can't do that either. So what is, what is your job then? Your job is to make him think that the high points is the ordinary life. And the low points, something must be wrong. Whatever you do, don't let him realize that this is perfectly ordinary. Right? How about that? The the, the law of undulation is that you will have high points, you will have low, low points in life. And that's actually perfectly ordinary. We tend to think that only the high good times, it's what we're owed, and that's, that's, that's the order, it's what we'll have all the time. So, when we get to Psalm 13, it helps us to navigate that very law. The, this psalm is arranged in a way that should make you think. David could have summarized, think about it this way, this psalm could have been three verses long instead of six. David could have just said, verse 1, I am afflicted, hear me, O Lord. Verse 2, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. Right? Let's hurry up and get to, the, get to the good stuff. So why doesn't he? Because David wants to see the work and action of God. He does not simply want a soft and easy word about God. I have to think that when he says in verse 2, How long must I take counsel in my soul? If you are walking through a time of depression or grief, you know how dark and hopeless the voice in your own head can get. Which is part, part, of, part of why we gather for corporate worship. The idea is that the words of God can get you out of your own head. Can get you out of your own head. Can give you a different voice. So that we have different words put on our lips. 
so that we can sing different words. We can eat and drink from God Himself and be steadied and sustained by a different vocabulary than the one your soul invents at 3 a.m. when sleep won't come to the despairing heart. That is why, dearly beloved saints, on first Wednesdays we're going to start learning the Psalms. Because God wants us to pray like this. He wants us to cry like this. He wants us to argue like this. He wants us to sing like this. And so learning these becomes important. Not just snippets of them here and there. Not just one or two lines from them. Listen, we could write a song of just verses 5 and 6 in Psalm 13. It would be a very bright and happy song. Right? Because we left the hardship out of it. You can only sing the last two verses if you like. You'll get a very happy song. But listen, God's Word out of context is not God's Word. Right? So the way we sing is also going to impact the way we talk, the way we counsel, the way we pray. Sometimes when people are in the midst of so much grief and hurt, and you just cannot imagine it, you try to hurry them along to verse 5 and 6. Right? You try to hurry them along. Let's hurry up and get to verse 5 and 6. This hurts too much. We want a resurrection without a cross. Okay, so I've talked about verses 1 and 2. I've talked about 5 and 6. What about that middle bit? 3 and 4 in the middle there. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. This is David arguing with God. Listen up and answer me. Lots of demanding happening here. David says, listen up, consider my argument, answer me, light up my eyes. The New Living Translation says, restore the sparkle to my eyes. The idea is, give me back the face of joy. Give me back my smile. Give me back the encouragement that you took from me. So that, verse 4, so that my enemy doesn't get to gloat. So that my enemy, and David has a sort of prepared speech here, so that my enemy can't say, I have prevailed over him. So David does two things here that I want you to notice. He demands his joy back. He tells God what God already knows. He predicts a future, right? My enemy triumphing over me and gloating and mocking me. That God already knows is possible. This is different from how we pray. Sometimes we think, well, I'm not going to say all those things in my prayer. God already knows what's going on. I don't need to articulate what's going on or what could happen or the, the, the eventual sort of possible future that's burdening my heart. I'm not going to talk about that in prayer. God already knows that. Apparently, He still wants you to say it. God wants us to pray like this. He wants us to cry like this. He wants us to argue like this and to sing like this. Now, you may, may have heard that argue God wants me to argue with him in a real sense yes you mean God wants me to tell him what will happen if he doesn't act yes I didn't make it up it's in Psalm 13 take it up with David Psalm 13 is here to teach you David tells God if you don't act here's how my enemies are going to react if you don't do something God here's going to be the outcome now we don't always talk that way We are good Westminsterian Presbyterians. So we say God from all eternity has freely and unchangeably ordained whatsoever comes to pass. So whatever happens is going to happen. Well, yes, the first bit of information you had there is true. God does freely ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yes and amen. That is a bit of theological data. That is certainly true. Okay? Bit of theological data. Certainly true. 
Do you know what God wants you to do with that bit of theological data? Hey, trust Him with it. Amen. Your turn to preach eventually. <laughs> I'm keeping coming, keep it coming, brother. So He wants you to take that and be sure of it while you take your behavior to Him. And you take your words to Him. And you filter your words through Psalm 13. And say, Dear God, do you see? You see what these wicked men are doing and what they're going to do. And, and bring it into the spiritual realm as well. Do you see what the demonic hordes are up to? Do you see what the hordes of hell and the haters of God are doing? How long will you forget me? Don't you know that they are going to start bad-mouthing me and, by the way, bad-mouthing you if they keep winning like this. God, don't you hate it when the wicked gloat. God wants you to pray like that. To cry like that. To argue like that. To sing like that. We are afraid, I think, sometimes to pray like that. You certainly don't hear enough of it, I think, in our churches. In, in, in part, in part, why, why don't we hear this kind of prayer in our churches? Well, there are lots of reasons. One is our sort of pietism, because we're afraid of sounding like we are um, uh, uh, getting too, uh, too comfortable with God. Uh, another part of it would be that we're, we're just not used to praying about our enemies, this enemy language. If we pray about our enemies, the world's going to realize we're praying about them, and we kind of want to be friends with the world. The world is always ready to make you feel better about being friends with the world. It's like when someone says, you know, I just, I feel more welcome at a bar than I do at a church. Well, if you define welcome as approval and co-participation in your sin and misery, then yeah, of course that's going to happen. But we don't bring enemy language in our prayers, into our prayers, because we really want to be nice to everyone in the sense of making everybody feel good about our words. We don't pray about our enemies because I think sometimes the fact is we just don't have any. Except for demons. And don't get me wrong, demons are enemies and the Psalms are our war songs in spiritual warfare. But when we say that our enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil, we still mean the first two, alright? We might not think we have enemies though, but David does. The psalmists do. They aren't afraid to ask God to do something about it. That might challenge your prayer patterns. That's all I'm saying. Not only the way we pray about others, but also the way we pray about ourselves. Notice David does not say, um, let me see, consider and answer me, Lord, uh, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Now, Lord, while we're on the topic of my enemies, you know that I'm a sinner just like my enemies, and if not for your grace, I'd be just as bad as them. And so, Lord, I'm not in really, really in any place to condemn their actions because total depravity, total depravity, oh, what a worm I am. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't be honest about your own sin in prayer. You ought to. It's why we do a confession of sin. I'm just noting here that in this psalm, that sort of self-deprecation that can't, that is unable to ask for God's judgment on God's enemies is just not how David prays. And in many cases, it is just as unbiblical as the impulse that... Um, Wants, wants to be liked all the time. So we have to square with this reality. Our God has called us by name out of darkness into His marvelous light. Jesus Christ Himself has revealed to us that those who dwell in darkness hate the light. Some will delight when we fall down or get hurt. 
Some will gleefully rejoice when we refuse to shut down our churches and somebody gets sick. Other times, people will try to make you stumble and fall so that they can laugh at you. It might be, I mean, it might be something really simple and, and just uh, a drop in the ocean, like making you look stupid on social media, or it might be something far more destructive than that to your reputation. I'm saying expect it. Take it to God. Be unafraid to argue like David does. Where does David take his argument after this? Verse 5. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart will rejoice in your salvation. Please note the future tense. I will sing to the Lord. Because he has, past tense, dealt bountifully with me. So David trusts in the future provision of the Lord. Because he knows the past provision of the Lord. So he knows he's going to sing again of joy and relief. And if God answered my prayer, David cries out to God. He cries out because he's not getting anywhere. He demands that God see the problem, see the potential consequences of divine inaction, let's say. And in so doing, David is praying biblically. But then he says, I know you'll hear me. I know you'll act. Here's where my trust is. Look at verse 5. What does David trust in? Somebody tell me. (laughs) What does David trust in? God's steadfast love, right? I've trusted in your steadfast love. That's where his trust is. And you have to know that when you are in trial and when you are in affliction and when you are in depression, that is what is always at risk. God doesn't love me. Does God really love me? Will I ever know joy again? Will I ever be able to tell stories of His faithfulness again? That's what's at risk in the middle of the valley. Do you see why this is in our songbook? God wants us to cry like this, to argue like this, to sing like this, to hope like this. God thinks we need to learn how to talk this way how to pay attention to what we're singing, how to learn how to, how to worship God and acknowledge our discontent at the same time. How long, O oh Lord? Not, listen, not ungodly content that just grumbles all the time, but godly discontent. Is there such a thing? That it, but a, 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 a troubled heart that cries out and argues and then verse 5 and 6 rests. I have... I have what I would call a very optimistic orientation toward life in general. I tend to always be trying to expect the best of circumstances and to, and to work toward the best outcomes and work for them, okay? Whereas Marissa is the realist. <laughs> I'll be like, this is how it's going to go. And Marissa's like, it's not going to go that way. No, it's not. <laughs> and here's five reasons why that you haven't thought of. She's really good at it. Uh, but I, I, so I tend to be very sort of optimistic in my orientation toward things. When I'm just looking toward the future, how this is going to go, how that's going to work out. Maybe you're like that too. Maybe you tend to be a pretty optimistic or positive person. Then you need to learn about verses 1 and 2 and, and 3 and 4. Because otherwise, when affliction and hardship and tragedy hits, you're not going to have a language. You're not going to have a vocabulary. And you're going to be tempted to pray, well, God, if you're going to forsake me, then I'm forsaking you too. 
you won't have language for those moments. Because just your bent toward optimism has not prepared you to suffer. Because we don't know how to talk about our discontent in the way God tells us to talk about it, Psalm 13. Now, look, it's possible that you might be on the other extreme. You might have a more pessimistic orientation, and I'm sorry if you do, all pessimists, no, no, we're realists. I know. Um, But depending on, if you have a pessimistic orientation or a negative orientation, depending on your experiences or your personality or whether or not your breakfast was properly cooked, you might come to Psalm 13 saying, hey, you see, lamentation. (laughs) I love lamentation. My spirit animal is Eeyore, right? (laughs) We should sing nothing but lamentation all the time. (laughs) No happiness, no optimism, just dour, sour faces. And there are people who can get kind of so fixated on lamentation, you almost think they're afraid of joy. That's why Psalm 13 has six verses. Because if you only know how to lament, over time you're going to crush your own soul. And you will fight hard to make sure everyone around you is just as miserable as you are. And if you only know how to sing happy songs, you will bottle up your discontent because you don't have a vocabulary for it. You don't know how to talk about it. And then it will come, I promise, spilling out of you in a hundred unhealthy, ungodly, gossipy, sinful ways that you cannot control. You will get angry, sassy, and irritable because you have no language for your discontent. You only have happy songs. So I say, do what God tells you to do. Okay, By singing how God tells you to sing. Let your heart be amazed by the reality that praying, how long, O Lord, is itself a profound expression of faith. When we read verses 1 and 2, we might be tempted to think, right? how long, O oh Lord? Will, will you forget me forever? Oh, David's lost his faith. Right? But this psalm is all shot through with faith. He lifts up his complaint four times, right? All the, the four how longs. And then the very next part, verse 3, answer me, my God. He cries out in pain, but then he cries out in faith. How long will you forget me? You're still my God. And then I have trusted in your steadfast love. And then he makes a vow. I will sing because my God is not in fact a cold, distant, careless, stingy God who shortchanges his people. I will sing because I don't have a stingy God. I have a, Lord, I have a God who has dealt bountifully with me. And here we see that David finds a way to give thanks in the middle of his groaning. Because you'd be stupid to think that by the time, I don't care, I mean, I don't care, you know, get a metronome, get get to the slowest tempo. I don't care how slow you sing this song. Everything's not put put back together by the time he gets to verse 5 and 6, right? Everything is not all put together now. But we see that David finds a way to give thanks, verse 5 and 6, when he's still in the middle of the valley, still in the middle of his groaning. It is possible to, through gritted teeth, groan out your thanksgiving. I would ask you, is that what verse 5 and 6 sounds like? I don't think so. Right? There There is a way to sort of 
just put on a smile and oh thank you there was a uh, there was a video floating around social media for a while of, of some cruel parents who wrapped up an avocado for christmas for their kid right and they put it under the tree and he tears it open and he lifts it up and he's obviously been trained to be very polite because he goes oh an avocado thanks Right? And that's, I mean, just so total like coldness in the face, but thanks. And you can hear the letdown in his voice. You can train yourself to do that, even in, in prayer. Just, just forcing a thanks. I'm not really thankful, but thank you. So why do we groan out our thanksgiving? Part of the reason is because when trial comes, we have not been given a vocabulary. In part, I would offer to you, Our singing hasn't taught us how. We need a larger vocabulary. God gives us the vocabulary in His Word so that when affliction comes, the Holy Spirit will take the words that are in your songs, put them on your lips, and you will find you have other stuff to say besides thanks. Have you ever struggled with what to pray? The disciples did, remember? Oh Lord, teach us to pray. Have you ever struggled to find words in the midst of the dark night of the soul. Thank you for that honesty. God wants to teach you how to talk, little children. He wants to teach you how to talk. Often we stop praying, not because we stop needing to pray, but because we stop having words. And we don't know how to pray because we've forgotten how to sing. I have a note here that I can stop here for time, but I think I'm going to make it. So a, a song like Psalm 13, the whole thing, okay? Not just part of it. The whole thing gives us a liturgy to speak in the midst of the storm. That's the whole reason we're doing liturgy as well, to train ourselves to put words on our lips so we can learn how to talk to God, to confess our sin, to glory in the cross, to bless our neighbors, and to remain steadfast until our last breath. And this psalm gives you words. It gives you a script, if you like. Now, that's really important because when I say script, that immediately sounds cold for, for some of us. Like we hear the word script and it's like, well, okay, a, a script. All right, great. God's given me a script. But look, I, I didn't say a technical manual. I said a script. Scripts are made for movies and plays. Nobody calls their physics textbook a script. But if it's a play or it's a movie... If it's something exciting that we're going to remember and treasure, that's a script. Psalm 13 is a script, not a textbook. It's not a three-step formula. Now, you you could say, okay, there, there are three steps. You know, Pastor Brian, I heard you divide that psalm into three parts. Yes, the sermon on uh, Psalm 13, this one has three parts. So in that sense, there are three parts in the psalm. But if you want to call those steps, like three steps, think of them as steps in a dance, not steps in a program. This dance has three steps. Other psalms of lament have five. Some have eight. Some have 17. Those are scripts for different dances at different times. But this psalm takes you through these particular steps. It's not a magic formula. It's much stronger than that. It's an example of how one of the chapters in your story will go. Because that's what you are, Christian. You're a character in God's story. Not a mechanism in step three of a process. 
You are a character in God's story. And God wants you to learn your part in His story and how to tell your own stories. He wants you to learn how to talk and how to pray and how to sing. He wants you to move, Psalm 13, from affliction to rest. And if you skip to the good part of the movie, you go, if you skip dinner, go straight to dessert, you're going to have some problems. I remember once sharing a psalm. I honestly don't remember what psalm it was. But I remember I, I was sharing it with a, a young person who was in the middle of some real trial and some real hurt. And I said, here, take this psalm, pray it. I'm going to call you in about a week and you let me know how it's going. So I touched base with them a week later. I said, how are you doing? And they said, I prayed the psalm you gave me and nothing happened. Okay, let's talk about that. Because we want to address that. It made me realize that some clarifications probably in order. God teaches us how to talk because He means to give us faith for both the short and the long term. Both the short and the long term. Faith in God's words and God's promises settles your heart. Why? Not because you know how this chapter ends, but because you know how the book ends. You know how the whole story ends, Christian. I'm not saying that if you're in a hard time, just pray Psalm 13, and by the time you get to verse 5, it's going to all be better. It's not a vending machine. And I, I say that because I think we do sometimes pray like that. Like, we, we pray, okay, wait, wait four minutes, <laughs> it's not better, guess it didn't work. Because we're microwave people. I've talked about that before. Because we're microwave people, right? It, it, it's going to get fixed in four minutes or, or, or it doesn't work. I am, I'm, not, I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm saying that praying and singing the Psalms is in many ways an exercise of faith. And look, the faith you exercise on Monday morning before breakfast might have very little to do with what happens before lunch. The faith you exercise on Tuesday might have very little to do with what happens on Thursday. The faith you exercise in August might not make everything better by mid-September. But you're a character in God's story. You're not the author. You're walking in faith. You know how the story ends, but you don't know what's in each chapter. And the rain and the storms that God sends in February might be meant for an August harvest. So it might not make sense to you in March. It might still not make sense in April. But God means to write you a story that includes plenty of singing at the end. I have more to say, but I will stop here. <laughs> and we will continue with Psalm 13 next Sunday. In a moment, we are going to sing Psalm 13. It's not a long psalm, so it's not a long song. But I chose this particular paraphrase of Psalm 13. This might sound like a weird reason, but because it has the word depression in it. When you're, when you're getting through song, uh, verses 3 and 4, it talks about, I'm, 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 I'm locked in this depression. When will, you, when, when will I be released? And so this is a song that, that we're going to learn how to sing together. Now, it is, it is to a tune that many of you are familiar with. Uh, uh, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, right? Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. We know that one? Okay. So if you know that one, you're good to go on this uh, arrangement of Psalm 13. I'm going to pray, and our uh, musicians are going to come forward, and then we'll sing together. 
O Lord our God, we sang a moment ago, how great Thou art. And so we ask for trust as we navigate difficult times. We ask that You would help us in the midst by giving us words. Words in the midst of our frustration and anger and despair. In our hardship in the unexpected grief that we have to navigate. And as we cry out to You, how long, O Lord? We do it with the confidence that the God who's writing the story is the one who's also writing the ending. And the God who does all things well and ordains whatsoever comes to pass is writing all the chapters in the middle. And so give it to us to speak and to pray and to sing in such a way that grows, uh, grows our, our spirits, strengthens our hearts, steadies our souls. For you are the God who means to do all this for us by your own word and Holy Spirit. So we ask for it now in Jesus' name. Amen.